So, I actually really enjoy snow, at least the first few hours of it, because uh, it reminds me of growing up in Colorado. So, uh, but I'm sure that will pass in a matter of a couple hours. So, <laughs> thought we'd start this morning with Psalm 56. Psalm 56. This is a a Psalm of David. When the Philistines had seized him in Gath. So, if you know the story of David, uh, David was anointed as the future king of Israel when he was just a young, uh, he, he was just a young man, probably not even a man, just a boy. He was the uh, last in his family and was... Uh, as a result of that, had the shepherding job that his older brothers didn't have, and uh, that's when he was anointed. He actually, uh, in, you know the story of David and Goliath, he actually went to the front lines at one point and killed Goliath, the, who was from Gath, and um, at that point, uh, the current king in Israel, Saul, brought him into his court, and David was there as a musician and servant to the king, until the word of David's anointing became uh, more sure in Saul's mind, and then Saul tried to kill him. As we know, he uh, threw spears at him and did other things, and so David took off, and it was while David had taken off that he actually went and made his camp with the enemies. Uh, so he went to Gath, the very place where uh, Goliath was from, and he went before the king and feigned uh, insanity. It's another psalm that we read. And anyway, he ended up becoming uh, a dual citizen. He had a citizen in Palestinians' territory and a citizenship in uh, Israeli territory, the children of Jacob. And so anyway, uh, while he was there, things didn't go quite the way he planned, and this is part of when things didn't go quite the way he planned. And I thought, you know, it's kind of a weird psalm to start the new year off with, but it has some elements in it that are actually related to what we're going to look at in Ephesians this morning and are very important. So whoever would like to read out Psalm 56, please do so. I will be happy to read. Great. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape. In wrath cast upon the people, O God, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Amen. So, when you read that, what kind of thoughts come to your mind? What, what, what pops off the page for you? It's definitely a prayer to God. Yes. This is what, this is, uh, the Psalms is wisdom literature, so it's the, the, uh, the heart expression of, uh, to God about the revelation that we've received from God. So definitely a prayer. 
Put this on. When you're afraid to trust in So he has a, a confidence in God. And his confidence is based on what? On God. On who God is. Not on anything that he brings to the table. Right? So, so David was a pretty, uh, pretty clever man. And when you look at the, um, the exploits of David, as we read about in, uh, in Samuel and in other parts of the Bible, um, he was he was a smart warrior king, and yet he wasn't relying on any of that. Part of it may have been the circumstance, because God pretty much tied his hands in this situation, so that he could only trust in God. God never does that to us, though, right? I mean, we always have something we bring to the table, right? Now, he didn't have anything other than his confidence that God is who he says he is and he'll do what he said he would do. He says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God I trust. We, we read that on our dollar bill, right? At least currently. Um, and what really strikes me as I... Um, as I read through this, I, I read that he's aware that God knows every everything about him and everything about his life and everything about his struggles and his trials. He says, uh, you have taken account of my wanderings or my tossings, I think as it, as it was in your translation. Um, he put, David speaking, you put my tears in your bottle. In other words, God's completely aware of his suffering, and that's precious to him. And are they not in your book? In other words, God's fully aware of them. And what does he say? He says, In God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? But there's, there's a, a consequence of David's faith and trust in God. So God has made a revelation which David has heard in the spirit and appropriated and that that affects the way that he's living. He's living in the promise. And as a result of that, we read, your vows are binding upon me. Or as it says, I must perform my vows to you. So there's a, a, a compelling need in David's life to be responsive to what God has revealed to him. So God has revealed that he is, has a, a place in God's kingdom and he has a purpose in God's kingdom, that he's been created for that purpose. And David takes that to heart and he says, you know, um, I not only trust you, but that compels me to fulfill that which you've designed me for. He says, I will render to you thank offerings. So as a minimum... Even if he does nothing more, he'll be thankful and grateful for that which God has, has done, is doing, and will do in his life. And when I read that, um, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And then he affirms what God has done. He says, for you delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. So he's talking about that future promise, that inheritance with God, that salvation, right? So David, years before Christ has come, he's believing the promise of God, that God will redeem his people, that he will withhold judgment until the end. And I'm going through the different promises, promises to Adam, promise to, to Noah, um, the promise to Abraham, that God would have a people and that they would be uh, in God's kingdom, and God himself would be in their presence. They would be allowed to be uh, access to the court of the king. And that what that does is it creates a sense of obligation, that we are obligated as a result of God's grace. And it's not an obligation like we think of, of obligations where we're bound and it's an enslavement, but rather it's, an, it's a joy. 
Um, he is joyfully fulfilling his vows that he's made. And that the end result is, is that God gives us a new heart. And that we are able to dwell in the presence of the king for eternity. And those are the, the promises as listed out in the Old Testament. We come to the New Testament. Paul, being well-versed in all of these uh, promises of God. right? So he was uh, a Pharisee. He was a lawyer. He had been trained in rhetoric. He had been trained in defense of um, the, like, like a scribe, um, where he was aware of the, the law, the Jewish law, and was able to defend it as a zealot. He was a Pharisee. And beyond that, he was a very, very clever rhetorician. And as a result, he was a man of renown. So people, even though he wasn't big in stature, he was uh, known to be very fierce when defending the faith. And he, in his, in his zealotry, actually des- desired to put down this heresy called Christianity. These followers of Jesus. And they, as they rose up, and that's when he actually had an encounter with Jesus, we read about. He was knocked off his horse and... And Jesus said, why are you kicking against the goats? Why are you um, pushing back against the plan of God? Right? Don't, you, don't you read your scripture? Here, let me open your eyes. And that's exactly what God did. He opened his eyes. And so Paul is writing to us in that enlightened, spirit-filled place. Where was Paul when he wrote Ephesians? prison. He was in prison in Rome. This is the first time that he was imprisoned. About when was this written? Do you remember? When we first started out a few months back? I think I passed out a, uh, a chronology of the apostolic age. I think I did. Looks something like this. This is the second page of it. I can take you through, and I know you can't read this. Pardon? <laughs> yeah, it's right around right around sixty sixty two. So, if we look at the uh, chronology of the apostolic age, the crucifixion was on April third, thirty three A.D., um, and Jesus' resurrection was April fifth, thirty three A.D. Pentecost happened on May twenty fourth, thirty three A.D. This is according to Harold Honer, who's a uh, um, theologian, uh, doctorate of theology from Dallas Seminary. Uh, so this is the chronology, and you get Paul in there. Paul's conversion happened a couple years after that, the summer of 35. And then Paul went through this whole period of ministry and then uh, started missionary journeys in uh, April of 48 A.D. So that was a significant time after uh, the church had formed, and he went out to the, to the Gentiles, right? In fact, he's writing to a Gentile audience. Well, as we go through that chronology, we get to uh, Paul had gone through what was captured in Acts as the three missionary journeys of Paul. And uh, he ends up going to Jerusalem where he's taken uh, captive. And then he just goes to Caesarea. And throughout his captivity, what is Paul doing? Witnessing. He's witnessing. He is he's sharing that which God gave him of first importance, right? He's sharing the gospel message that Jesus came for a purpose, that he is God with us, that he died for our sins, that which separates us from God, that he really died as a human being. He was buried. Um, he was raised on the third day for our justification, Paul would say. Right? that he understood that the resurrection had a whole lot of implication. It wasn't just a miracle, it was a miracle with, with broad effect. It affected everybody. In fact, our eternal life is that resurrected life of Christ. And that the, he was one of the witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Right? We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He gives that testimony. That's what he was saying all the way through from Jerusalem 
to Caesarea on the coast, which those of us who go to Israel will get an opportunity to go to the coast to see Caesarea, where he uh, stood trial there. Then he was taken to Rome, and in Rome he was imprisoned for a good stretch of time and had to have uh, support provided for him while he was in Rome. And it was while he was there, uh, around sometime between February of 60 and March of 62, uh, we believe that that's when that uh, imprisonment occurred and that Ephesians was written at the beginning of that in the autumn of 60 with uh, Colossians and Philemon written after that in Philippians um, following that. So these are what we call the prison letters, the prison epistles, right? And this whole time was a time of, like David in the psalm, was not a time that he would have designed as the plan for his life. But God designed that as the plan for his life. And he recognized that wherever he was, he was there for God's purpose. So... When we look at Ephesians, we need to recognize that background of Paul and what he has had revealed to him, what his purpose is in life as he understands it. It's been revealed from his Lord and our Lord and why he would share certain things. He wants us to know the gospel. He wants us to know our identity in Christ. So, you know, this is small and I'm going to take it away and bring up something a little bit easier to read. So when we, we look at uh, Ephesians, we know that it's a general letter that Paul wrote in the sense that it's not uh, addressing a specific issue within the church. There wasn't some heresy that he was refuting. There wasn't um, some particular, uh, particularly egregious moral failure that he was addressing. But rather, he wants us to understand the foundation of our faith in Christ, right? And that understanding who we are in Christ, which is a big phrase for Paul, that that should affect the way that we live. So we give the thesis statement is basically the second half of Ephesians, which we're pushing towards in 4.1. And we walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, that will know our position in Christ, that will affect us in such a way that we walk or we behave in the world according to that revelation and understanding of who we are in Christ. So that means there's an obligation, a fulfilling of a vow that is occurring as we walk as children of light. That when you are saved, you are saved for a purpose. And the obligation is to fulfill that purpose for which you were created. And I would say that if you had never fallen, right? imagine for a moment that Adam never sinned, as impossible as, as we understand that could be. Um, and that's from the, the place of the fall. But imagine he had never sinned. Imagine that you were without sin. You were created for a purpose. When God, he knew you from before the foundation of the world, that means before anything was created, he knew you. And that you were created specifically for a purpose in his view of the good reality of goodness, right? Of eternity. So you were, you were created for that purpose. And we understand as we looked at um, the word shalom, shalom being often translated peace, which is different than what the word peace means today in the world. Today, in the, our world, peace means Lack of hostility, right? So if you go into a place and they're not shooting at you, they're not calling you names, um, and you can sit down and eat your lunch in peace without hostility, right? That's the way the world sees peace. But that's not what the word shalom, even though it's often translated peace, means. It means according to God's design. It means wholeness, completeness. That which he intended from before the foundation of the world the way it is supposed to be, right? And what we're in the midst of is the way it's not supposed to be. We all intuitively know that. It's not supposed to be this way. And that's why the gospel appeals to us because we recognize, as Paul was un unwrapping his, his theology about 
the salvation plan that it's not the way it's supposed to be, that sin is there, and that sin results in death. So there's a consequence to separation from God. But there's also an answer to that. God's answer is Jesus, that he would die in our place. So if the consequence of sin is death, a death had to be died. A death had to take place. That's what Jesus did. That's the solution. Then comes the obligation, right? So what? What does that mean to me? That's what Paul's driving at right now. He's driving at the so what. So I'm going to read and capture exactly what I just said from Ephesians as we've kind of marched through and we're going to take off in in chapter 3, verse 1. told you I would read uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 every week because I believe this is the theological core of what Paul uh, has used as organization for this letter. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in the heavenlies, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to an adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. See, God's desire from before the foundation of the world was to bless us with every spiritual blessing. And that he chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Right? And that we were created then for a purpose. And as we went through uh, the understanding of Ephesians, we talked about salvation theology, we talked about Paul's prayer having made this incredible revelation about who Christ is, that he is, he is God's plan for our redemption. He is the way that we actually come back into relationship. We are adopted into the family. Even though we were formerly outside, we are now inside. And that the goal was, is that um, we would be blameless before him, that we would be chosen um, for adoption and forgiveness through grace, and that God's plan for eternity would be revealed in his son, and that his prayer we read on would be that we would know the hope of his calling, that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would know his incomparably great power. Those are his words. Those are Paul's words. That's what he wants for us, right? Um, He's writing for that purpose. So when we looked at chapter 2, we see that chapter 2 starts out with a very succinct statement of the gospel. The the evangelistic message, and I use my four-point approach, right? Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Um, There's a consequence of that. The former uh, way of life in sins leads to death, and that's exactly where he starts out. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, chapter 2, verse 1, right? 
but that God's merciful salvation in Christ was his grace upon us, right? So we read about that. Um, it says, <clears throat> I'll, I'll read chapter 2 really quick because this is the, the gospel evangelistic message. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So it's not just a corruption that we can shed, it's actually a corruption that uh, inhabits the, um, the immaterial as well what we think of as the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places, in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So that's the whole purpose of God's creation of us and God's redemption of us. And that's why I make the statement that there's, there's a couple of points. The first two points can be quickly covered. We're dead in our sins. And Paul does that in his introduction here in, in chapter 2. He says, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. That's point one and two. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and oh, by the way, there's a consequence. You're dead. The other two are non-intuitive. Why would God go and redeem that which was lost? Why would he seek out and save that which had already rejected him and rebelled against him. It's because he loves us, right? And it was impossible as it was for us to come back into his presence. He made a way. And then there's the so what, the obligation question. So what? So now you know this. You know that there's a problem. You know there's a consequence. You know that there's a solution. So what? What does that mean? We talked about the means of our salvation by grace that we have been saved. Then there was this through faith. We came to understand that that faith is that experiential um, knowledge of God. Right? That it's not that we are saved by faith. faith, We're saved by grace. But that when we respond to that salvation, when we turn to God, when we accept that which he has done for us, we are exercising faith. Right? We're actually displaying a confidence just like David did. So David's confidence was in God's faithfulness, not in his faith in God. Does that make sense? So our faith is an experience of God's grace on our behalf, that our confidence is in his faithfulness. And, and Paul's going to unpack that some more for us, and, and we see that. But there's this, this whole uh, how we are saved, and that why we are saved is for good works. And then we looked at uh, the next important piece of that, which is Paul's uh, discussion of what... Union with Christ means. So that's where we were last week, and that's where we finished up. That we are distance, we were distance from God and His purposes, the privileges that He has for His citizens in His kingdom. And um, that's the way we were until we were made near in Christ. So what happened is we were afar, we were made near. And He wants us to, to understand that it has nothing to do with your race, your gender, um, your occupation, your skill set. You know, I've got bow skills, nunchuck skills. <laughs> no, 
has nothing to do with that. This is the great equalizer, right? All are sinners before him. All are unworthy of salvation. All were afar. Even those that were supposed to be near were afar. And what God did is he brought them all together in Christ. He brought the Jew and the Gentile to the same place. The Jew had no place of special privilege. Rather, they had uh, a purpose in God's administration of his kingdom to present who he was to the world. And so what we see largely preserved for us in scripture comes from the Hebrews. Right? It comes from the uh, tribes of Israel that uh, came out of Egypt in the Exodus. So what we understand is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, was through Moses. What tribe was Moses from? Levites. Right. He was a, a Levite. So he was a prophet and a priest. And we understand that the priesthood would then come through that line. And what was that priesthood about? Alex knows. <laughs> So the priest speaks on behalf of God. No, no. That's the prophet. The prophet does. Right, so the prophet speaking on behalf of God. The priest does what? He's the ear for God. He he brings the people together with God. Right? So this nation of Israel had a purpose that they were, one, the prophetic voice came through that nation. Right? But also the priests came through that nation as well. And that they were the ones that were to bring the world to God. They were to declare who he was, to share the special revelation that had been given, and then to mediate bringing the people to God. That's why it was necessary for the one who would save the whole world, the one who would remove that separation between us and God, would come from the, that people group. The Messiah came from one of the, one of the sons of Jacob. But not with a <clears throat> pure lineage. Not with a pure lineage. Yeah, That's correct. Jews, right? Pardon? So, yeah, Non-Jews in the lineage. That's correct. We have so Ruth. We have... Or, you know. And what is, that, what is that telling us? So by the, the law of the world, right... Uh, enough generations had passed, even though David went and kind of broke that rule. Subsequent sons of David actually fulfilled the law of how many generations you'd have to have if you had a, a Gentile mixed in before you would then be able to um, be able to, to serve in the temple. Mistakes. Pardon? A provision to clean up some mistakes. Yeah. So, so what we see is, is that God from the very beginning was showing us that, no, it has nothing to do with, really, um, the nationality, really, your, your parental lineage. It has to do with God's um, setting apart. I mean, he did that from the very beginning. He didn't choose the first. He chose the second, right? It wasn't Esau that he chose. It was Jacob. And we see that pattern of um, the woman being put forth as... Um, the warrior in the in the saving grace in the time of the judges, you know, we know about Deborah, right? Why why was she there? Um, we know about uh, times when, <clears throat> so it was uh, Samuel and his lineage. It was Hannah, whose prayer was effective, right? We know that it was Abigail that corrected David and said, you know, it's not right for a king to be behaving like this. And you read about these underdogs all the way through the Bible that are injecting um, that which clearly it was God's divine purpose and design to not choose the strongest, to not choose the best looking, to not choose the most skillful, but rather to choose the unexpected. In fact, Joseph... If, if he hadn't been a man of faith, then God would have put, us, put away Mary. So we read about when we read the Christmas story. 
It's like he had already decided you know, he was a good man. He wasn't going to put Mary up for shame, but he was not going to continue because that would have not been right to take a wife that was already pregnant by somebody else. So he was going to divorce her. And so if he had not been faithful and heard the revelation of God, he would not have taken this woman as his wife. And yet she was the one who would bear the Savior of the world. Right? I mean, the whole story is a story of underdogs. It isn't a story of the one who you would expect. And that's just the way God is. That's the way his grace works. And that it's all about him and his faithfulness to bring about that which we cannot possibly imagine or foresee. Because he sees the end from the beginning. That's what he he revealed to us in his word. So that's what this unity is all about. It isn't about um, whether you're a Gentile called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. In other words, he's taking that which distinguishes him as a Pharisee and as a a Jew, um, as a, a Hebrew, and he's saying that has no value. That's just something that men do, right? Now, that, that would have, to a Jew, that would have immediately caused his ears to burn. He would have cringed because that's a distinctive for them. Just like, um, you know, you get the devout Jews and they have the, the braid and the purple uh, and tassel and all of the different things that they do and the phylactery that they put on their forehead and the leather they wrap around their wrist. Um, all of that was, was very important to them. You know, we uh, epitomize it in the Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tradition, that they do this because that's who they are. And what Paul is saying, knowing that that's who he was, he says, no, nah, that's of nothing. That's, a, that's by human hands. Remember, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where you were. You were secular. But he wants us to understand that those Jews that thought they were special were also in that same place. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, bringing about shalom, thus establishing shalom, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And then he quotes um, Old Testament scripture, and he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. So shalom had to be preached to the Gentiles that there is a way that is according to God's design and it also had to be preached to those who were near to the to the those who called themselves the Jews so were they is that the new church the this Gentiles is this is the this is the church the that what was too and that which in their law and ordinance their tradition separated them such that they actually had a wall that you couldn't, you know, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't go beyond that if you went into the Temple uh, Mount area. And that um, you were uh, looked down on with derision, right? And we know that the Jews did that because they even treated those that were half-breeds that way, the Samaritans, right? That were formerly from their tribes in the north, but because they had intermarried and mixed and all of that, they were, they were even worse than the Gentiles because they were of this pure race and then they intermixed. Right? Not only that, but they took that which was pure in their religion, their law, and they corrupted that too. Right? So they had nothing good to say about those that were outside. But what, what Paul is saying is that Jesus broke that down. And, and he does this in two ways. One, he says that 
You know, the, the whole playing field is level. There is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no Gentile. Um, all are one in Christ. So one, he, he levels the playing field, but then he also explains how the, living, the, the playing field was always level, that there was no special uh, distinction among one race over another, um, but that all were separated from God, and that that required that that which separated from uh, humanity from God, the creator from the creation, needed to be broken through. It had to be removed. And so that's what he did. That that, that um, curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place actually was torn from top to bottom. That that wall was torn down between us and God. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So that's talking about the church. And that's a building made without hands. Right, but it kind of seems like he's saying the Jews were, were joining with the Jews. And, and he uses that language where we're grafted in yeah. in other letters, right, into the Romans. So he talks about specifically because the Jew really holds on to their identity. And he's saying, no, 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 you have a new identity. Whether Jew or Gentile, you are a new creation in Christ. And at first, most of the converts are Jews, right? Uh, initially, but at the time that he's writing this, that's yeah. not the case. There was a time, however, that God set up a system that he used and it brought the Jews into relationship with him. And that yes. the Gentiles had access to that by becoming a Jew and entering into that system. So right. there was a system that was acceptable at one time. Right. When Paul is now writing, he's saying that God, God is saying, I've set that system aside right. because of failures with my people. And now I've set up a different system, which has broken down that wall that you said, right. and makes it so that Jew and Gentile can come together. But there was, and there is, right. a distinction, even today, well, yeah. between Jews and Gentiles. They're, they're fighting it out. Yeah. But, but is that distinction a distinction that God recognizes uh, as far as being able to access him? So the, the uh, sacrificial system was, uh, was revealed the to the Hebrew children in the desert, right? Base Mount Sinai, that's where they were given that ordinance. Um, and that sacrificial system, we understand in, from the author of Hebrews, that that was a type of that which is required in order to actually bring us into the presence of God. That access to God is gained through sacrifice. And then fellowship with God is gained through holiness. So once you have access, there is a further obligation to be holy as he is holy. And that that was, uh, the ordinance of that was through the, what we call today the Jews, right? And that there was uh, a time when those who, they believed it, even though they weren't by birth, uh, one of those tribes could become a proselyte and go through the process of uh, embracing that religion. But that religion was never satisfactory to bring people to God. Even one who practiced it as perfectly as could be practiced was still separated from God. I, I don't think that's entirely correct because that was the process that God ordained at that point in time mm -hmm. for the people to enter into fellowship with him. And it was looking forward to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Right, it was looking forward. It was looking but it forward. was acceptable before God. Well, it was, it was acceptable it. in the sense that the perfect hadn't yet come. That's correct. Okay. But it wasn't. But it wasn't perfect in the sense that it could ever accomplish it the redemption that correct. God desired. But but God accepted it on a temporary form, and so yes. they were in in all 
in all purposes and intent acceptable before God, right. even though Christ had not died yet. But but if it had, if it had been perfect, if it would have truly allowed them to enter into God's presence for eternity, there would have been no need for Christ to come. So but it God was, knew that that was coming. Right. See, and, and, and God was looking right, forward to that. Right. And so what I would say is that the the sacrificial system, as it was in place, was to be a reminder of the promise of God for absolute, uh, absolutely solving this problem, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And and so it could have never been left in place indefinitely. It had right. to have a point where um, the law was fulfilled in the coming of Christ, and that's and that's what Paul says. He says, yeah, isn't that over the Jews? Kind of, since those who don't accept Christ, they're still trying to go back to that. They're still trying to use and that. The Samaritans are still sacrificing in Israel. The Samaritans are still sacrificing yeah. in Israel. Yep. And so, when we go to Mount Gerizim, you'll see that they still have an altar built there, and they still practice that annual sacrifice. When did the the rest of the Jews stop the sacrifice? The first temple destruction or the second? Um, so it would have been so it, it didn't happen with the first temple destruction because there was a remnant that was taken out and they went back and rebuilt the temple and that sacrificial system even though it had been um, put into a hiatus during the dispersion when those went that went back under the Persian rule uh, they reestablished the sacrificial system in Jerusalem and the lady I was just reading Leviticus the end of Leviticus again and it's like if you follow carefully what I say I'll bless you and if you don't yes. I'm going to do this and if you don't I'm going to do this blessing and it's like here's, yes. here, here's what's going to happen next you know yep. sooner or later but, but what was it that they were supposed to uh, embrace was it the letter of the law well, I'm a Pharisee, so yes. <laughs> what did Jesus say about when your donkey falls into a ditch on the Sabbath? What is the letter of the law? The way that they had interpreted the law, yeah. What is God's purpose to bring life? He said, so you rescue your donkey. But if I, if I help the Levite touch something I'm not supposed to because it's falling, I'm going to get in trouble. And that's where I think Jesus tried to help uh, understand what the law was. The law, as it was declared by God, is the very will of God, what it looks like to be holy. But we don't live in a perfect world. We're already fallen. Right? Right, right. I don't think that doesn't law, mean that we should morally compromise. Right. I think the law, if you think, you know, the law sets up this expectation that you... You ought to, and you can behave that way. I think that's missing the point of the law. The law is to illustrate your in, your imperfection and the plan. Well, not only deal with that. it, not only uh, reveals our imperfection, but it perfectly reveals the perfection of God. It perfectly reveals what what goodness, righteousness, and truth look like. What the standard it is. Yeah. And, and what happens is, in a fallen state, when I when I look at that, I understand I'm not holy. I understand that, you know, woe is me. Or you understand I need to try harder, or you understand I'm... I'm and that was, that was in where we started out when we were looking at the different systems. Yeah. There are some that believe that we are not totally unable to... Um, to embrace the holiness of God, right? And that was a Pelagian heresy that came out in the time of uh, Augustine. And the idea was, and this is why I was concerned, kind of what you were saying, and I, I needed the clarification, because there was a belief that you could not sin. And that you could be acceptable to God by not sinning. And what I understand, the New Testament tells me, all of sin. Because it's our nature. Yeah, it's, we're we're, and, we're and descendants of Adam. You're proving that you're not saved. Pardon? Yeah, but you're saved now, so you should stop that. 
Well, that would then make us really good Methodists if, uh, if, if we could get to a point of perfection. You may have to rethink some of the stuff that you do that you call sin. You might need to call it something. Oh, I can redefine. Now that's a good lawyer. So Paul, being a good lawyer, would redefine. But he would, he would always bring us back to what the scripture said. So, you know, if, if we think that we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Right. I write these things that you might not sin, but if you do, yeah, but yeah. when you do, but when you do, <laughs> when you do I write these things to you that you may not sin, but when you do, this is a first class conditional here, if anyone sins, so that's uh, reality assumed true, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So when we talked about the concept of uh, atonement, propitiation is one of the aspects of atonement, that which uh, appeases the, the righteous anger of God towards sin, right? Um, so we understand atonement being a covering, being a propitiation, and being uh, a redemption, a reconciliation, paying the the price and so um, I, I don't see where and, and this is where we got to be careful because the old sacrificial system could never bring us to the point where we could enter into God's presence it actually took a sacrifice for us that where the high priest could actually take the atoning blood to the mercy seat of God and remove that separation that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. And that's what Jesus came to do. And he even revealed that at the very beginning of his ministry. When he's approaching Nathaniel, um, this is the, the calling of uh, some of the early apostles in John chapter 1. <clears throat> and you get to uh, John, I'll, I'll read it for you. <clears throat> There's the allusion to uh, the story of Jacob. And when Jacob's on the run and he at Bethel... Um, has a vision where heaven is opened and the angels are ascending and descending. Sometimes we call it Jacob's ladder or Jacob's stairway. But when you read that account in the Old Testament, the doors of heaven are closed back up. But when you read Jesus making an allusion to that in uh, John chapter 1, and uh, he reveals himself to Nathaniel, I'm reading in uh, verse 50 is where I'm going to pick up. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened, and that's in a perfect tense, so that means it's a a single action with a continuing result, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That what Jesus would do is he would actually tear that curtain that separated the the throne room of God from the creation of God such that the creature could come into the very presence of God. Not that that we could ever in any way be worthy of that. It's not something that that, uh, we have. It's rather the value he places on us in saying, come to me, I love you. Right? And that that's why we can take our prayers, our petitions, and we can actually lay them at the mercy seat of, of God today. And that's what we do when we pray. When we make petition before God, we're actually taking that into his presence. And we see that old sacrificial system and all of the different um, artifacts of that. The, the showbread, the censer of incense, the, the light... Uh, from the lampstand. All of that is about how we enter into the presence of God. And what happened that Jesus did for us is he removed that barrier. And in removing that barrier, he joined two peoples who were formerly at enmity, and even today are at enmity. They are at war, right? There is hostility. And yet he made them one. Because that was his intent from before the foundation of the world. That there would be one people. So that would be in one believing Jews, those believing there, there are those that are not hostile towards us. When we go to Israel, we will meet Messianic Jews 
and they will embrace Christianity. And we may have some theological differences like in baptism and uh, things like that. Um, some of the practice, what we call sacrament, we may have differences on. But the foundational beliefs in Jesus as our Savior are there and the same. And we are one. Absolutely. And in that sense, we are the universal church. We're all Catholic. Mitch. Back at Ephesians 2, 15. Mm-hmm. What does that have to say about the jot and tittle? What does that got to say about? Oh, the jot and tittle. Jot and tittle. Jot and tittle. Um, that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. So there wasn't any aspect of, okay, so... Today, we have the law, right? And then we have the interpreters of the law. We have the Supreme Court, or we have the court. And uh, ultimately, that goes to the Supreme Court. And they're interpreters of the law. They're not the makers of the law. They're the interpreters of the law. And today, they can reinterpret that to mean something different based on case law because they have removed absolutes, right? So what we understand is God's law, as uttered by him, is perfect without error and Jesus actually expressed it perfectly in the way he lived you know when he was asked the question what is the greatest commandment what did he say love, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul right all your strength and he said the second is like it and he quoted Leviticus right so, love your neighbor as yourself. How about all the sacrificial laws? So, the sacrificial laws, he also explained. And so, he first went through the ordinances. He went through the Sabbath. He, he addressed what is, what's the Sabbath about. What does that mean? He went through and, and honored all of the, the sacrificial system as it was in place that God had set up at that point. Right? Um. In his death, he fulfilled that which that type of um, sacrificial system was intended to point towards what he would do and what he did. And so in that, he completely fulfilled every jot, every tittle of the law as it was revealed about what it means to be holy as he is holy, what it means to approach God through sacrifice, what it means um, to... Do the good works of God. He says, what you see me doing, you will do, and greater than these even. That we would actually do the good works of God. That's what we're created for, right? We're created in his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So a good work is according to God's definition of good, not my definition of good. So my definition of good might mean giving $300 billion to India to help build an educational system, right? That may not be God's definition of good. God's definition of good might mean having the courage to stand and tell somebody about who he is. So that's why we study to show ourselves approved, right? Because we want to understand what good is. That's what Hebrews tells us. That we should no longer, and I know I'm way over time. You're way over day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> time. Yep. <laughs> so, for by this time, I'm reading in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. You have need to, uh, again, have someone teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to grow up in Christ. We're supposed to study the word. We're supposed to not keep drinking milk. We're supposed to eat meat, which is why I try and drill down and take an inordinate amount of time to go through very simple things, right? Because I want the meat. And I, I want to give you what meat I'm eating. 
And then you guys will say, well, that's really, you know, kind of a wimpy portion here. Let me give you this. So that's what it's all about. I think that's goodness, right? Um, and that we're, we're way over, and we need to, and I didn't even get to chapter three. <laughs> but I did get through chapter two. Uh, let's go ahead and, and close here just because we're out of time, not because we're out of conversation. Um, Lord, we just thank you for all that you're doing um, in our presence. We thank you for um, your uh, revelation of yourself in the world. As, you know, as we see the snow and we see the... Uh, the rightness of snow falling. Um, Lord, we know that you are in, in charge of what's going on, no matter what it looks like uh, to the hearts of men about the chaos in the world. Lord, you are God, and we trust in you. And we have put our confidence in your faithfulness and not just in our faith. And Lord, that we know that our faith is is that which we exercise in order to walk uh, according to that which you've designed us for, to do good works. And Lord, we just ask that you would strengthen us to do that. Lord, we ask that you be with Ryan this morning as he brings your word to the congregation. We ask for safe travels for Bob and Julie as they uh, return from Africa. Lord. Uh, Lord, we ask for your protection, your provision, and we thank you so much for your service to us, Lord Jesus, and your death on the cross. Please help us to be good emissaries for you, good ambassadors in this world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this we pray in your name. Amen.